Hey you, are you ready? Grab your pack, grab your tent, grab your gear. Jump in. We're going on an adventure. In Arizona, there's so much to see, so much to experience. At GCU, adventure is never too far away. Offering over 200 academic programs with a Christian worldview and nestled in the heart of Phoenix, you can earn your degree in fewer than four years and explore everything Arizona has to offer. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash azroadtrip. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Donald Trump in office on trade policy. You know, he reminds me of that that guy in The Wizard of Oz, you know, when you pull back the curtain, it's a really small dude. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. If you qualify for Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy. You're forgetting that. I said anyone I mean, like look, your grandmother who like, has no money, we need she a healthcare system. You're automatically, automatically enrolled. Enrolls people, regardless of whether they choose to opt in or not. If you lose your job, for instance, his his healthcare plan would not automatically enroll you. You would have to opt in. My healthcare plan would. That's a big difference. I'm fulfilling the legacy of Barack Obama, and you're not. I'll be surprised to him. Andrew Yang. This is why Come presidential on, debates on. are becoming unwatchable. Yeah. Yeah, where, this where reminds everybody of what they cannot Can stand about Washington. Can scoring I? points against each other, Can poking I? at each other, and telling each other that, that you're my plan, your plan. Look, we all yeah, That's called a Democratic primary election. That's called an election. That's an election. You know, this is what we're here for. It's an election. Yeah, but a house, a house divided cannot stand. And that is not how we're Look, gonna everyone, we know we're on the same team here. We know we're on the same team. We all have a better vision for health care than our current president. Okay, those were the Democratic candidates for president last week in the debate nationally televised on ABC. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the uh, race for president and last week's debate. Uh, if you want to be part of the show and talk directly to me and our guest, you can call us at 88-LESLIE, 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. These are the questions we'll discuss, dis- discuss today. Currently, only Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren register in double digits in the polls. Did any of the other candidates uh, in Thursday's debate make a major impact? Two, 
What did you like or dislike about the third round of the presidential debates? And third, does the infighting, which we heard a little bit of before in that uh, sound clip, does the infighting among the Democratic candidates make it harder to beat Donald Trump next year? Uh, we will discuss these and other issues with you. And our guest in the first half hour is Sean Zella, deputy editor of Congressional Quarterly Magazine. Hi, Sean. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hey, Brad. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, why don't you uh, just give us your impressions of the uh, Democratic debate last Thursday? Well, I think you you summarized it pretty well. I mean, there's it's it's uh, gotten to the point where we're looking at a first tier and a second tier, with the first tier being Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, and the rest of the crowd hoping to get in the mix, hoping to stay in the fight um, until Iowa voters caucus in February. And the tenor of the debate is shifting between those who favor a more, uh, shall we say, moderate approach uh, to politics, uh, a return to normalcy, a return to civility, um, a continuation of the Obama period, which uh, Joe Biden increasingly represents, and the progressives in the mix, uh, led by Sanders and Warren, who see the need to uh, a more aggressive style of politics and more far-reaching proposals that will appeal to uh, a fired-up Democratic base that wants to see not only President Trump ousted from office, but also some real change in America, uh, some real solutions to the problems of income inequality and um, lack of health insurance still 10 years after, nearly 10 years after Obamacare um, and climate change and want those issues on the front burner. Okay. Uh, Only three of the Democratic presidential candidates, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, are registering in double digits in the polls. Uh, Do you think that uh, any of the other candidates uh, got a significant boost uh, from the debate last Thursday? Or basically, are we uh, just, uh, you know, looking at a Biden, Warren, and Sanders deal right now? Uh, well, they certainly tried. I mean, you can point to the, the clip you aired there of uh, Julian Castro um, basically surreptitiously raising the age issue. Joe Biden, did you forget what you said just two minutes ago, um, trying to uh, knock Biden off his pedestal and also raise his own profile? And you had Beto O'Rourke calling for uh, buybacks, mandatory buybacks of assault rifles, citing the uh, mass shooting in his own old house district in El Paso, Texas, last month. And that was a, a you know a step that Democrats have resisted taking in the past, that we're not about uh, gun confiscation. But he said he was going to go there and that if you've got an assault rifle, he'd, he'd make it mandatory that you give it, give it up and the government would compensate you, but you wouldn't have a choice. So, you know, he's, he's sort of, I think, uh, throwing a line out there, hoping that it'll stick and get him some attention to rise in the polls. But it's important to note that, you know, regardless of where they stand in the polls, if they make it to Iowa and New Hampshire, if they do well 
in one or both of those early states, that could provide some momentum as well. And so there's another race going on here. You know, there's one in the debate uh, speaking to the Democratic electorate nationwide, but these candidates are also in Iowa and New Hampshire trying retail politics door-to-door, -door, shaking hands, um, trying to do well there, and that could be another avenue for success for one of these in the second tier. Yeah, I... You know, my uh, history of observing uh, Democratic presidential primaries uh, is that the races are incredibly fluid. Uh, and you do have a big three right now, Sanders, Warren, and Biden. But, you know, I, I really think that one of the other candidates, and I'll be damned if I know which one, uh, may make a move uh, and... Uh, score big in Iowa and in New Hampshire uh, and make this uh, uh, broaden out the race. Uh, it's just, you know, we've had this discussion uh, before, Sean. Uh, polling is in primaries is remarkably tricky. Uh, Warren, Biden, and Sanders have more name recognition than any of the other candidates. Uh, therefore, they're registering strongest in the polls. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if one of the other candidates, again, I'm not sure which one, but I would guess it may be uh, uh, Kamala Harris or uh, Mayor Pete, uh, might uh, become a real player in this race uh, before everything's said and done. Uh, but uh, we will see. Uh how did uh, Sean? How did you? Uh, how would you grade uh, Joe Biden's performance in the debate? Uh, we played the clip of him being attacked rather ham-handedly, I thought, by Julian Castro. Uh, and there has, since that debate, there has been more comments uh, about Biden's age uh, and his ability to keep pace. Uh, in a high-pressured format like the debate. Uh, what did you think of this performance? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe a gentleman see. Uh, per better than his uh, previous debate performances. But he, I, I think, yes, he is struggling in this environment with a crowd of 10 Democrats around him, with himself as the person they're all trying to knock off his pedestal at the top of the polls. And uh, he's also, ha you know, he's having trouble articulating why he wants to be president, what his goals would be as president. He's, he's more presenting himself as a continuation of the Obama period and, in a way, a return to pre-Trump politics when things were, you know, marginally more civil. And, you know, he's talked about working across the aisle with Republicans. A lot of people feel that's far-fetched now. Um, after the Republicans stonewalled President Obama and, and made it very difficult for him to move his legislative agenda. And now in Washington, which is completely crippled by um, uh, partisan gridlock with Democrats not willing to work with President Trump and him not willing to work with them, and a Congress basically getting very, very little done this year. We're looking at what could be, you know, what an all-time record for legislative unproductivity. Um, so I think Biden, you know, he's 
He's hanging on, but there was also a, a concern about some of the comments he made about African Americans, and some people felt it was a bit condescending, you know, his guidance to them about how they, you know, should raise their children in order to move up in the American meritocracy. But at the same time, Biden has done very well in the polls amongst black voters who see him as a guy who can win, who want to thank him, I think, probably for his loyal service to President Obama. Okay. Uh, there's been some criticism uh, going back to uh, Beto O'Rourke. And, his, you know, it seems to me he shined in the part of the debate uh, gun, uh, when they were talking about gun violence. Uh, he made a very impassioned plea uh, and uh, about the need to do something about gun violence uh, uh, based on what happened in his hometown of El Paso, Texas. Uh, then he said that uh, in answer to a question that he would take away uh, people's uh, AR-15s. Uh, and there was some criticism that... Um, I think Mayor Pete, and I think it came up again on the Sunday morning talk shows, uh, that uh, Beto was uh, confirming the worst fears of many Americans that he was going to come in uh, and take away everybody's guns somewhat unilaterally, uh, and that uh, concerned, uh, you know, that confirmed the worst fears uh, of uh, many Americans about Democrats and guns. Uh, how, what would your take on it? Well, I think this is really interesting. I mean, there's a perhaps it's a gambit on O'Rourke's part that the politics surrounding guns have changed. And there's lots of evidence to support that. A majority of Americans support things like expanded background checks to gun shows and private sales where they don't occur right now. And other forms of uh, of gun control that are on the table, perhaps even uh, an assault weapons ban, if not a um, a buyback, a mandatory buyback, as as O'Rourke proposed. But it, nonetheless, there's a risk, right? Because the polls may show that a majority of Americans support these kinds of gun policy changes, but at the same time, we know that historically, the gun owner has been very active in politics, you know, has been, that's been their key issue, and members of the NRA, that they, that's the one thing they really care about. And so they've been able to get their way when perhaps it isn't the majority view in the country, because they have such concentrated focus on that issue. And so for O'Rourke, he's taking a bit of a risk, especially if, as many Democrats want, he drops out of the race and runs for Senate in Texas against uh, John Cornyn, the Republican senator, who seems like he could be vulnerable. But in Texas, I'm guessing the politics around guns are more conservative than they are in the nation at large. Uh, and finally, and I think very quickly, uh, do you think the infighting uh, among Democrats on Medicare for all and uh, even uh, uh, assault weapons uh, is a big problem for Democrats uh, uh, in terms of uh, facing Donald Trump next year? 
Yes, it's a problem. It's an inevitable problem. It's the same as when Bernie uh, and Bernie and Hillary were going at it in 2016. That the, the Bernie supporters, many of them, stayed home or voted for Jill Stein. You don't want that to happen. I think the counteracting force this time is that Democrats really don't like Donald Trump, and they have a lot of incentive to team to get behind whoever gets the nomination. Okay, thanks, Sean, uh, for joining us, and we hope to again talk to you soon. Our guest in this half hour, half hour was Sean Zella, deputy uh, editor of the Congressional Quarterly Magazine. We'll be back after these messages with our provocative progressive political panel uh, with our uh, usual guest, uh, executive producer Mark Grimaldi, and, and Democratic strategist Anissa Singh. We'll be back after these messages. Trump's many presidential grifts are too numerous to count. So today, let's just focus on the golf-based ones. For example, last week, Vice President Mike Pence did his boss a solid. Just last week, Vice President Mike Pence came under fire for spending two nights at the president's resort in Ireland it was 181 miles away from where his meetings were in Dublin. Now, he said he was staying at his boss's resort because he has family ties to the town. Well, Trump denied having anything to do with the vice president staying at his hotel. Pence's own chief of staff seemed to have a slightly different take. The vice president's chief of staff said Trump himself suggested Pence stay there. Mark Short saying, I don't think it was a request like a command. I think it was a suggestion. He said, calm down, everyone a command. It was just a suggestion, you know, like waking up to a horse's head in a bed is a suggestion that you find the rest of the horse, I guess. I don't know. I never seen that movie. Pence staying at a Trump resort nearly 200 miles away from his meetings is a waste of taxpayer money in order to enrich the president. Nor is Trump's administration only trying to prop up its resorts abroad. They also announced plans to do it right here in America. When Trump said he'd like to hold the next G7 meeting at his resort, in Doral, Florida. You might think housing seven heads of state and the dozens of people on their staff is just a way for Trump to funnel more money into his pelican jowls, but he's actually got a very reasonable explanation. Doral happens to be uh, within Miami. It's a city. It's very importantly only five minutes from the airport. Oh my God! They get to be near the airport? That is luxurious. Obviously, the president only wants the G7 conference at his golf resort because he knows it's the best place to hold it. It definitely has nothing to do with the fact that as of 2017, income from Trump's Doral Resort has dropped 69%. Trump is also using the military in inappropriate ways. Politico reported how a routine Air Force trip to deliver supplies from the United States to Kuwait had an unexpected layover at Trump Turnberry in Scotland, where the crew stayed. And in case you think, well, at least the troops got to stay in a ritzy resort, apparently the cruise per diem wasn't even enough to cover food there. Nothing says, I support the troops, like making them split a haggis six ways. And they're not the only U.S. troops who suddenly found themselves deployed to rural Scotland. Since October 2017, at Presswick Airport, there have been 629 refueling stops, totaling a spend on fuel of about $11 million. Presswick is a very small civilian airport. It's not doing very well commercially. 629 aircraft times the number of men in the aircrew, if they're all staying at Turnbury, significant figure. Cool, 
Trump finally found a business model that works. Deploy the entire Air Force to spend money on you. The point is, Prestwick Airport is struggling, and that $11 million of our money is enough to keep Prestwick open for business, which is very beneficial for Trump Turnberry, but a total ripoff for the American taxpayer. It sucks that the U.S. government is now just a coupon for the president's shitty resorts. We used to consider ourselves the greatest nation on Earth. Now we're basically an Expedia pop-up. Look, I know compared to some of the awful things Trump has done, it can be hard to get worked up about a little golf corruption between friends, but if we let him get away with this, it will only get worse. Okay, welcome back. When news breaks, we fix it here on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. And I'm Brad Bannon. As usual in our second half hour, it's time for our provocative progressive political panel. Our guest panelist today is Anissa Singh. Anissa is an attorney turned organizer and democratic strategist who brings with her more than a decade of experience in public interest and social justice work. Joining Anisha on the panel today, as always, is executive producer Mark Grimaldi, who is also a progressive political activist. If you want to be part of the roundtable and talk directly to me and our guest, call us at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Okay, let's get the panel rolling. Uh, first of all, uh, let's uh, talk about the uh, Democratic presidential debate uh, last Thursday. Uh, Anisha, what was your uh, impression? What impressions did you have about the Democratic presidential debate? Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Um, you know, I, I feel like now that we're coming down to being able to fit all of the candidates into one night, um, we're, we're able to see and take a deeper dive into the weeds on topics and really get to know some of these candidates. And, um, you know, we, we watched each of the candidates push one another to be better on their issues um, and on the topics and to be more progressive in their in their policy platforms. Um, uh, Kamala Harris showed us she can go toe-to-toe with Trump once again with her one-liner zingers, um, really making sure that we remember that. Um, Cory Booker did so well um, and is most confident and comfortable speaking on racial justice issues, and we see that time and time again, and there was no exception to that on Thursday. Um, Beto does a really great job talking about assault weapons and guns and really leaned into the debate being in his home state of Texas where the recent El Paso shootings took place, and that really provided him with an unfortunate but necessary platform to show his leadership on gun violence prevention. Um, Castro did really well talking about race. Buttigieg had a really good argument about Medicare for all and what the pros and cons are to eliminating private insurance. Um, But I think what's also really interesting is to kind of take a look and and take a step back to really see how the media covers it in the days and weeks following that debate leading up to the next one, because we know that the more attention some of these candidates get um, from the media in the time leading up to the next one will also determine whether or not those who are remaining will survive and make it to to the debate stage next time around. So kind of watching that horse race coverage of these candidates um, is going to determine a lot in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, Mark, what were your impressions? You know, I think that uh, Anisha brings up some really strong points. Also, I think, you know, it's interesting when you come at it from 
people like ourselves who not only watch it but rewatch clips and you know go over reactions from it. But taking a step back and looking at the average voter, this may have been the first time they tuned into one of the debates. Um, this may be their first time seeing some of the other candidates on a national stage, whether it be, um, you know, Pete Buttigieg or someone, um, you know, like Amy Klobuchar or, you know, Julian Castro. They are familiarizing themselves with these candidates for the first time in some instances. So um, I thought it was a good showing. There really wasn't um, anything as a Democrat who, you know, is just wants to see us uh, take back the White House and the Senate where I was, you know, leaving it just feeling, you know, frustrated. Um, there was, you know, the moment between Julian Castro and Joe Biden, I think, um, you know, got a lot of attention because the news likes to highlight those things, you know, moments of, uh, you know, conflict or disagreement. Um, but when I think back to the Republican primary and, and some of the content uh, that was being discussed versus the type of uh, issues that we're discussing, I'm proud of our party and the direction that it's going in. And I do think that um, something you said, Brad, and, and, and your previous guest, Sean, mentioned that it does seem like there's um, two tiers of candidates now when you look at the polls anyway, um, with it being, you know, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But I also do think, you know, to your point, Brad, you know, looking for someone to potentially break out and join that higher tier. I definitely think that the candidates who are not amongst those three all are strong enough to do that, which makes it really interesting because you really don't know who will necessarily gain traction and why coming into the early primary states. So I think it's also going to be important to look at things like the candidates ground game, which, you know, doesn't always get a lot of coverage and isn't very sexy, but those are the types of things that really lay the groundwork, not only for um, the primary fight, but whoever ends up being the candidate, if they have a good infrastructure now, they can utilize that in a general. Yeah. You know, actually I thought of the three debates, it was the best debate so far. And I thought the moderators, the ABC moderators, did a good, it went well, mainly because the ABC moderators uh, let the candidates debate without interrupting them all the time. Uh, and I think it gave candidates to t uh, the opportunity to talk, uh, make some good substantive points about the issues. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about the way ABC uh, ha handled debate was in the opening statements, uh, you had the Democrats focusing their opening statements on attacking Trump and pointing out the uh, problems with the Trump presidency. And I guess it was George Stephanopoulos who led off the ABC moderators, uh, went from that and immediately uh, pitted the Democratic uh, candidates against each other uh, in on uh, health care for all. So uh, they were, you know, it seemed to me that at the beginning, Stephanopoulos was trying to bait the Democratic candidates from attacking each other. But for the most part, I think the moderators did a good job and let the Democrats, the Democratic candidates talk uh, without interrupting them very much, which I thought was uh, the way to go. And the future moderators might take uh, notice of that. Uh, let's uh, try uh, this. Uh, uh, one of the, uh, I thought, the uh, the most profound moments in the debate 
was when Beto O'Rourke talked about the uh, killings in his hometown of El Paso uh, and made a very poignant uh, plea uh, to end gun violence. Uh, he went on uh, to say very dramatically, which I think played very well on TV, uh, someone, one of the moderators asked him uh, what he'd do about assault weapons, and he said, basically, we're going to take away um, AR-15s, uh, which in my mind, it would be a very good idea. Um, we did have an, a ban uh, on assault weapons until 2004 when the Republicans uh, got rid of it, uh, but he got caught some flack uh, because, A, uh, uh, one of the candidates and um, somebody, one of the candidates in the debate and one of the candidates on Sunday morning TV basically said that his uh, statement that he was going to take away people's um, AR-15s uh, confirmed a lot of voters' worst fears that Democrats are there to take away guns uh, and that also uh, it wasn't the kind of thing you could do at executive by executive order uh, because um, just arbitrarily taking away assault weapons would, you know, certainly cause Second Amendment constitutional issues. On the other hand, if you do it through the congressional process, uh, the way Bill Clinton did, um, it seemed to pass Supreme Court muster. Uh, uh, Anissa, you're a lawyer. What did you make of that? I mean, I think this is the case for a lot of the a lot of the policies that are being put forward by these candidates. When you're looking across the board, um, the question that keeps coming up is: Can a president do this alone, or will they need Congress as well? And I think, you know, uh, for me, it, it's really come down to: What are we doing to make sure that we're advancing the conversation on structural reform to our democracy at the same time? Because again. There are only so many things that these presidential candidates can commit to doing all on their own through executive action when there's always going to be a need for legislation that can really solidify that. Because we've seen it time and time again now, the Trump administration has dismantled and torn apart executive actions taken by Barack Obama during his presidency. And what we want to avoid is having a situation where that can happen once again. I think we have to learn from our mistakes there and really make sure that we're not just winning back the presidency, but also winning back Congress and making sure that we have a system in place so that we can actually do that. Um, but again, I think that's, that's something that we're dealing with across all issues. And while it was really great to hear such an emphasis on guns, I wish there was a little bit more emphasis on other issues or even a mention of issues like reproductive health care or the courts or um, generally structural reform to our democracy. Okay, uh, we're going to go to break now, but when we return to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon, we will continue with our provocative progressive political panel. Today, our panelists uh, are Anissa Singh, uh, Democratic, uh, Democratic strategist and social justice organizer, and our own executive trucer, Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back after these messages. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, this week, our guest on the uh, progressive, provocative progressive political panel 
uh, our Democratic strategist, Anisha Singh, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. And we are discussing the uh, presidential race. Uh, let's uh, try this. Uh, I'd like to get the panel's reactions to this. I've been watching the debate Thursday night. Uh, I got the sense, and this is true, I think, in all three debates, there's been a lot of talk about uh, among the Democratic presidential candidates uh, about the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, which are both important issues. But I wonder if the Democrats are missing the trees for the forest. Uh, you don't have much conversation uh, among the Democrats about sort of voters' immediate concerns, uh, you know, better and more affordable daycare, uh, uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And it strikes me this is important uh, because a lot of economists believe that we're headed towards a recession. And I wonder if voters are going to be focused more on their immediate concerns um, about wages, um, about daycare, as money becomes uh, scarcer, uh, and be less patient with discussion about what I describe as mega issues like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, while they're both likely to be argued about uh, and discuss for years uh, way into uh, what could be a very pressing uh, a recession for American voters. Uh, so, uh, Anisha, do you think uh, the Democrats are, you know, focused so much on the sort of big picture comprehensive programs that they're missing some of the immediate problems like uh, wages and daycare? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's a it's a bit of a challenge, right? When you have ten candidates on the stage, there's only so many topics you can cover um, in order to give all of the candidates an opportunity to respond and you know uh, have a conversation back and forth with one another. Um, the downfall of that, again, is that then you end up with with uh, only a few topics being covered, and I think that's another thing that happened at this third debate. Um, I mentioned this a little bit before the break and alluded to this, but um, one great example is reproductive health care. Uh, right now, we are dealing with uh, Roe uh, being on the chopping block every day, the rollback of our rights, whether it's the Title X funding that Planned Parenthood has been losing um, or abortion bans across the country. Um, but where were the reproductive health care questions? Where were the abortion questions when women across the country are scared and, and trying to figure out which candidate they're going to vote for who are going to stand up for their reproductive health care rights? Um, then at the same time, you had our 150th judge confirmed by the Senate, uh, Trump-nominated judge confirmed by the Senate this last week, and it was actually Wednesday, Thursday itself when we hit that number. Um, and that's a huge uh, accomplishment for the Trump administration and very, very troublesome and worrisome for the rest of us because we recognize that these are lifetime appointments. So what are these presidential candidates going to do to reverse 
that and restore balance to our judiciary. You know, there's there's a number of issues that I think are on top of mind um, that are immediately going to be impacting people, and they want to see and hear from the presidential candidates on what they're going to do about it. But unfortunately, there were so many topics not touched. And the hope is that as we approach the fourth round of Democratic debates and as the, the number of candidates start to dwindle down, we can really hit some of those issues, hit on some of those issues a bit more and really get into the weeds of what these presidential candidates are going to do on day one to help everyday Americans with the issues that they are seeing impacting their day-to-day lives right now. Uh, Mark, you know, I started thinking about this issue uh, when we had uh, Robert Shapiro on the show a couple or a few weeks ago. And, you know, he was saying, you know, we're headed to a recession and Democrats really aren't talking about what they do uh, to bail out Americans uh, as we go through uh, the Trump recession. And, uh, you know, so much so I wrote my uh, this week's column in the Hill on the question. And by the way, if you want to read my column in the Hill, you can find it at muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, Mark, uh, do you think uh, Democrats are so, uh, talking so much about the big picture they might be uh, not effectively addressing a fallout from a Trump recession when it comes? I think, uh, Brad, it's a very good question. And in the limited amount of time I have, I'll say that I think they need to tie them together because acting on climate saves us not only lives uh, in our planet, but saves money with uh, using different sources of energy and getting health care right saves us money as well. So I think they can weave the two together. Okay, that's all there is for the show today, folks. I want to thank my guest, uh, Anisha Singh, our own executive producer, Mark Gamaldi, and, of course, uh, Sean Zella from Congressional Quarterly. Uh, I'm here every Monday at 3 p.m. If the Lord is willing, the creek don't rise, unless, of course, Donald Trump declares martial law. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.